Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo. Review. Attention, attention, we have a situation on sub level three. A situation on sub level three. Talking Trouble with Zach Bynes. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Yesteryear Troma Who review, or whatever it ends up being called in the episode title. Don't worry. Ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to listen to on the Yesteryear Valley Who review requires some uh, uh, a, 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 a prologue and an epilogue. Um, and in order to explain this whole situation, I have brought back the Valley Who's first guest, its inaugural guest, its legendary guest, Mr. Zach Bynes. Zach Bynes. Hey, hey, good morning out there in Ballyhoo land. Ballyhoo land. And Tromaville. And Tromaville. Two, two things that you wouldn't think go together. But they taste great together. They do. Nothing like a good Ballyhoo sandwich and a Tromaville shake, if you will. I So, and actually, I will disagree with you on that. You say you think they don't go together. But as the next uh, time length that has yet to be edited uh, will go to show (laughs) that trauma and the Hollywood of yore is definitely goes very hand in hand. Yes, it is. It's it's a it's quite a unique uh, little insight into how films of the past reach into the films of today and as as you know from being the guest the first guest on this show the goal has always been to talk about what inspires the filmmakers today from these films of the past and um i kind of want to let you explain the story a little bit so we uh, since bally whose debut you had talk and trauma the wonderful talk and trauma podcast where you yes. have uh, had my idiot ass on, but also a bunch of other really cool, talented people. You you were great. You you were on the Squeeze Play episode where we talked about um, Lloyd Kaufman, our our guest in this episode. About Spoilers, him. bro. They they saw it in the fucking description, dude. Uh, yeah, that is true. You guys know how to read. <laughs> it's not a surprise. It probably is in the title. They know what's happening. But so you were on that episode, and I brought you on to talk about squeeze play uh, because one, it is earlier in the trauma library pre toxic Avenger and two, that it is very heavily inspired by Charlie Chaplin and the older golden age Hollywood comedies. And I, you know, if you listen to my 10 episodes at this, as of this recording, um, I'm a huge trauma fan. And one thing I always see Lloyd talk about and allude to in different interviews and books is his love of these older movies. 
but he never gets a chance to really talk about it and ex- and just share his love of movies. Uh, you know, and everybody wants to know what's the craziest death scene you've ever put on film and stuff like that, which is, you know, perfectly appropriate to ask Lloyd Kaufman. But um, he, what a lot of people don't know is his love of film is pure. Mm-hmm. And he is he's just great at uh, sharing his love of older movies with people. And then that's when you sent me um this is actually following the squeeze pay release um because yes. um I got a uh, I wrote a little nice comment of thanking you for having me on the show and talking about Uncle Lloyd and Lloyd Kaufman liked it and he and you you immediately said Lloyd Kaufman is aware of your existence and I was like oh my god hallelujah um and then then came the talk about uh him being a fan of To Be or Not To Be, 1942's To Be or Not To Be, uh, directed by Ernst Lubitsch and starring Jack Benny. And um, and that's when you encouraged me, um, uh, not with a gun to my head, thankfully. That would have been weird if you would have been like, make him talk about Jack Benny. <laughs> it, was, it was with a hunting knife. It was a hunting, yes, yes, you were classy. It's with a hunting knife. You were just like, here, I'm... It was Giallo style. I had black gloves on. Oh, 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 oh. So it's a mystery, too. <laughs> no mystery. I'm too hairy. I leave <laughs> DNA evidence wherever I go. I fun- left some DNA evidence underneath this table. It'd be dar- funny if Dario Argento was watching a Giallo we made and he's just like, oh, he's the killer. Clearly, he's the killer. <laughs> I mean, well, well, if he watched one we made, it's still better than Dracula 3D. Ooh, 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 ooh. shots fired across <laughs> international waters <laughs> um but yes yeah, so i wrote a i wrote an email to uh lloyd kaufman uh edited it over the course of a month because i was in the middle of shooting a short film and um i i sent it to you beforehand to be like does this sound good and you were like yeah bro and um uh, and then i sent it and i thought well i'm gonna maybe hear back in a week in a month or never and 15 minutes after sending the email, like Kaufman responded with enthusiasm. Uh, and so what you are here go- going to hear today is the result of Mr. Zach Bynes, once again, not just being our first guest, but also being one of our most lovely guests to bring such an opportunity to this. I, I do want to say I'm also the last guest to be <laughs> recorded on your MacBook Pro. On my MacBook Pro, yes. Uh, this is the last uh, conversation. The conversation we have with Lloyd today was recorded over Zoom. Uh, and I've been using my MacBook Pro for uh, years since Shamley's beginnings, and this is the final time. After this, I will be moving to PC because Mac is pissing me off. Um, and uh, so, yeah, this is uh, so where it started on the Mac. Zach is ending in a Mac. I'm finishing all over your Mac. You're finishing. <laughs> um, and so, what you're going to hear today is kind of a. Uh, Kind of a, a, an amalgamation of not just Ballyhoo, but also talking trauma to a little respect because we do have Lloyd Kaufman on and we had Zach Bynes here because I wasn't going to do something this lovely without the person who brought this idea to the table. So for the uninitiated, Lloyd Kaufman is president of Troma Studios. Troma, as of this recording, has been around for 47 years. They're the oldest running independent film studio in the world. And when we say independent, we mean actually independent, one that has not been um, gobbled up by a subsidiary or a conglomerate. And Lloyd Kaufman, who uh, we talked to, he's the president of Troma. He's also the creator of The Toxic Avenger, uh, which just had its remake uh, shot 
like it just wrapped last week make in it, Bulgaria. Making make Blair directed it, I believe. Yep. Yeah. And um, and what you're going to hear within this in his history, because Toxic Avenger, Squeeze Play. Terror Firmer. Poultrygeist Night of the Chicken Dead. And um, and the most recent uh, film. Hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm. Hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm, which is a which is a mouthful, I must say. I love the title. It's just I I always feel awkward saying it because I'm just like, am I getting it correct, <laughs> or is it like she sells she shells but not the she shore? Um, but it's but it's but the the idea behind it is fantastic, and it's good. It's another testament to Lloyd's ability to be unapologetic and uncompromising, and. We we were fortunate enough to chat with him about some golden age icons as well as some trauma history and some trauma inside facts. Uh, I'd argue we got some pretty interesting stories about the making a squeeze play in here as a result of this conversation. Yeah. And we also got a bit more insight into how for a filmmaker and a film producer that has been relegated to the sidelines because of his independent stature is actually a very intelligent well-spoken appreciation of film as you alluded to what you said but also an incredibly kind and sweet human being um i think that one, one thing that can be said is is that the he was the most gen- one of the most genial people you could ever talk to he's one of the sweetest people you could ever call uncle lloydy uncle lloydy and today on the ballyhoo you're going to tune in and listen to zach vines and i talk to Uncle Lloydy, a.k.a. Lloyd Kaufman, a.k.a. the leader of Tromaville. All doggy tales. Uh, it's amazing. Now, we haven't seen the cartoons, the Toxy cartoons yet. But I guess at some point they'll, one, they'll see them. Uh, I guess They're getting there. I think they're the same, almost the same age as my kids. My kids are like five and a half. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, and have they seen the Toxic Crusaders? Yeah, they've watched the Toxic Crusaders, and uh, mm-hmm. they pull all my trauma movies out of the shelf, and they uh, they ask if Toxie's in any of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah, um, I don't have a kid. Um, I've got a nephew. He's three. Um, he is uh, he is up a little bit north of where I live. So whenever I get to interact with them, I'm following most of my sister's guidelines but i've got some i've got some stuff i need to show him amongst other things kid needs to be educated in looney tunes as well so i've got to make sure that he uh it's much more violent than uh, (laughs) cartoons can be very violent yeah i know it's um it's it's i've i've been doing some research into um uh bob clampett and his history with Looney Tunes and uh, watching his cartoons is I like pausing it and just watching like each painting that's basically constructed, like none of it's inner, none of it interlocks, but then you play it all the way through and it it feels like a fully animated thing, but the drawings don't indicate that it would be fully animated. (laughs) It's, it's, it's like watching, um, it's like watching like uh, several different pieces of art from one artist, like somehow meshing together for movement, like a clamp designed the characters or um he he his particular um he had already had access to bugs bunny and daffy duck by this point his job at a direct as director at that point was to uh implement one of many units so you had chuck jones's unit you had tex avery's unit and clampett's unit was known for absolutely insane like stretching limbs to the point of impossibility um 
a lot of pop culture references. Um, he di- he directed the one book review, which has, amongst other things, Daffy Duck looking like Danny Kaye in one particular um, cartoon segment. And you also have him playing around with Benny Goodman and uh, Tommy Dorsey caricatures. And it's 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 one of those things where none of the other directors did it. Like, he's the only one that has this style that no one can replicate. Um, so that's, it's been kind of interesting and actually like, uh, it's, that's one of the reasons I want to show it to my nephews just to be like, there's more than Disney and Mickey mouse, even though those can be fun. You, yeah. You've got to kind of check this out too. Cause it's super cool. <laughs> um, but and, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Like Chuck Jones, uh, what would be the difference? Uh, in other words, Clampert, the look of Bugs Bunny is not the different right or is um yeah. it, it's some, uh well um the, the the look isn't different uh, chuck jones is a little bit more i guess you would call it classy um he incorporates elements of uh opera and um he becomes a little bit more character driven so like the ra- the duck season rabbit season routine um which feels like this wonderful vaudeville routine that we never got to see on stage is uh, a little bit more staged and a little bit more uh, presented in a classy form, whereas Bob Clampett's cartoons, like, everything kind of stretches and the world feels surrealist. It's like a Dali painting that Dali never could have even conceived of. And and, and how about, who, who did the, uh, uh, I love the political Looney Tunes that they did during the war. I mean, you can, I guess you can't show them today. Oh, the the private snafu cartoons. Um, the where they were. Uh, it was so. so uh, Zach, this is interesting for you too. Um, the uh, during the war, um, Warner Brothers, along with the other studios, teamed up with the U.S. government to produce propaganda pieces um, that were shown in regular theaters, but for the army. They developed Private Snafu, who was a soldier that would would do everything wrong to teach the soldiers how to not act. I, I did see some of those where he like gets a prostitute. Yeah, and- he gets a prostitute. <laughs> he he speaks into a woman's breasts. Then her breasts are radios that are to sending like messages. German, to, yeah, to the, to the Nazis. Nazis. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, that those ones were done by Chuck. And the writer was Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss. Um, So they all sound like a Dr. Seuss rhyme that was never going to get published by Random House. (laughs) Where do you see these? Um, Some of them are available on the Looney Tunes Golden Collection. They're not on HBO Max. And I I think some of them are on YouTube, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. What about the the anti-Japanese... Oh, like the Popeyes, I remember uh, that. Yeah, um, those are uh, some of them are on those collections. There are other ones that are known as the Eleven Band, um, which I have access to. Um, they are uncomfortable to watch, to say the least. But um, but they do have elements of the animation at that time that are worth examining. I what I found what I find interesting in watching them is how. Uh, how frequent they would uh how frequent they would just jump to the caricature right away they wouldn't even like build up the cartoon like they were they were really gung-ho about going after the enemy at that point and it, as a result it just kind of feels uh, it's 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 a little too much to bear at times 
but there is a um and I and I found this with I went through John I'm going through John Houston right now too and his film Across the Pacific which he did before he went into his unit that ended up doing the Battle of San Pietro and eventually Let There Be Light um that film is early caricatures I'll interrupt you but Let There Be Light what, what, what I just I can't, what, what, remind me again, what was that? Oh, so he, um, Houston, uh, during the latter years of the war, the war was filming soldiers coming home from overseas experiencing PTSD. Um, and he um, actually, similar to a Sam Fuller film, Shock Corridor, he, um, he was filming the patients and their treatment. And it was something that had not been seen before by the American public and the U S government shut down the film, then restarted the film. And then they said, we're not going to release this to the general public. So John Houston said, well, can I at least show it to the museum of modern art? So they agreed. And literally hours before the screening was to commence, um, military police, uh, descended upon the museum of modern art and seized the print and took it and put it in a vault. Um, he didn't get it out until the mid eighties. And, um, uh, the movie, the master is influenced by it because they ended up putting that film as one of the bonus features on the blu-ray for the master. Um, it's, it's one of those films when you watch it, uh, that you see, you see a side of, not just PTSD, but also the way these mental illnesses have always been with us. It's not something that's just popped up in the last 20 to 30 years. It's something that's always been there. And it's a, it's a re- it's a very valuable document. Um, Walter Houston, his father narrates it. And it's, it's a very, um, when oh, I, when I watch it, I get the feeling that I have to be in the right mood to watch it because it is going to break your heart at points to watch people. What was who- it? Uh, showing it why was the uh, government so they wanted to portray the victory overseas as one fought by courage and and valor and they didn't want to show that the war had caused so much pain um, oh, oh. yeah they were worried about the image of the u.s soldier at that point and you know i mean when i, I when i was growing up like even even being born as as young as I am, the image of what a soldier is was always cemented as this tough, rough, ready to go guy. And then the older I get, and the more I look into this stuff, the more you realize it's much more complicated. And like, I'm actually glad that when when we were communicating, um, and you mentioned Sam Fuller, I hadn't gone down his rabbit hole that well. So I started doing that in preparation for this, and. Uh, the Steel Helmet um, is one of those films that I never thought I'd see out of the Golden Age of Hollywood or the that that or early studio system. It is so raw and um, and so I get I get the sense that Sam Fuller's experience in war dictates a lot of what his films are going forward. The only Sam Fuller film that I had fully examined prior to this was the big red one um uh with lee marvin and mark hamill um and that gives a full portrait of it but he's been doing this as early on um and actually 
I guess we're kind of kicking off the interview at this point, Lloyd. First of all, welcome to the show. <laughs> um, uh, and um, I, I would wanted to ask you because since we've got on the subject of Sam Fuller, what was the first Sam Fuller movie you ever saw? Do you do you think you can recall? I, it, I'm trying to think. Um, it may have been the Shock Corridor. Shock Corridor, yes. Yeah. And. Uh, then when I went to Yale, the Yale Film Society was uh, heavy into auteur filmmaking. And since I read French, I can speak fluent French, uh, they had a big stack of the magazines uh, of the uh, Cinematheque, French Cinematheque, uh, Cahiers de Cinema. Mm -hmm. And there were articles about Fuller and about, uh, you know, these were written by uh, Godard and, and uh, Chabrol and two or three others who were transitioning they were journalists uh, and they were transitioning uh, not to be women but to be uh, movie makers <laughs> um, uh, but they they had this uh, auteur theory that they created and fuller was very much worshipped uh, by them yeah shock corridor is something that i i got to experience for the first time prior to this and zach you uh got I, yeah i i just uh watch watched it the other night and that's it's, a <laughs> it, it's a heavy film which um Incredible. i think it's, that it's what what i find interesting about shock corridor is something that I've seen in your work. Um, it's it's a very unapologetic and unafraid film. Um, and the subject of Shock Corridor for the audience listening is uh, a journalist goes into a checks himself into a mental hospital under the auspices that he's been committing incest with his sister uh, to um, find out who murdered a particular patient who might have saw something wrong going on, and he is put through the mental health system at that time as it stood and you see these i i would argue these images of how society has essentially broken down these people to the point where they're in this place uh something that's uh i would argue on the level of the 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 brave the the brave bravado statements you've made on your films is there is a a guy who thinks he's a confederate soldier a painter who is or sketch artist who is who is uh very very sensitive about what his uh sketches are but also an african-american gentleman who uh proclaims clan rhetoric then that's that in particular is this well can you imagine putting that up today and and uh <laughs> It's 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 something that uh, Dave Chappelle uh, hinted at with his Clayton Bigsby sketch on the Chappelle show, but this one in particular too, like when they're in a, when they're in their straitjackets in the beds and he's trying to get the name out of it, uh, and the, you hear the actor breaking down about what it was like being going through the education system under uh, under integration and the rhetoric and the vile things that he experienced as a result of it it's 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 no wonder that when i when i when i knew that we were going to be talking to you the one thing that i think of when i think of trauma is unapologetic and unafraid and i think that shock corridor correlates very well with that and uh sam fuller was a guy who i think that i guess what i what i'd like to know from you is like was was he kind of like a big catalyst kickoff for you wanting to to make those 
unafraid statements? Well, certainly I admired his films from the 60s. You know, I started, I, I guess I became aware of him at Yale in the 60s, you know, mid-60s. Mid hmm. Then I, I, I got to be friends with him uh, through the, uh, uh, my, uh, my friend from Yale who had a, the neighbor, Eric Sherman, whose father was uh, Vincent, Vincent Sherman. Yeah. Uh, he he had written a book. Eric had written a book called the uh, the director's event, and Fuller had a chapter in it. Uh, you know, they interviewed five auteur type directors, and um, I had a big retrospective at the at the Cinematheque, and then the Cinematheque somehow must have told Fuller about uh, Troma, and then uh, I got to go uh, meet with Fuller and his wife. Um, I'm still sort of in touch with his wife, uh, but um, he was a good guy. He loved uh, Troma's War, <laughs> and, and um, uh, he, he really got it, uh, which most people don't. And um, he also gave me a book that he thought would make a, a good movie. Uh, it's uh, uh, clearly written when he was a reporter, uh, kind of about the soldiers and and he drew some photos in the in the book too. Uh, I really should go back to it because I don't know what I'm going to shoot next. I don't have a script that I'm particularly excited about. Maybe I, that's I, the catalyst that can kick off. Uh, look, I, I, it's up in my bedroom. Uh, I, it's very entertaining, and uh, I'm sure I could get the rights pretty easily. Mm -hmm. anyway, so, I, I, you guys know of a script that's really good. Uh, I'm looking for something uh, different and unusual and. And that uh, has something to say. Uh, it just has to be entertaining. Can be any genre. Can be anything. Just so that uh, you know it's entertaining and has uh, you know some kind of a point of view that uh, might be uh, of interest to me. So, did your friendship with Sam Fuller um, help get Troma to put out Shark? Uh, well, no. Um, I Shark came to us through a company that went bankrupt and they sold their library. And uh, Sam and I were trying to find the footage. You know, they fucked up his movie. They chopped it all up. Mm -hmm. And um, they, were, they, you know, they replaced him and then chopped the film up. Uh, it still has some, some fuller magic in it. Uh, again, I haven't seen it for a while, but... Uh, uh, there's a fight scene, and you're looking at it through uh, a wall that's uh, has hole, not holes but patterns like a screen. Yeah, mm -hmm. very, very Fuller-esque. Um, um, but um, the, the uh, shark was really not the right word. It should have been more of a character-driven title. It came out around the time of Jaws and. Uh, they actually had a apparently that they on that film they had a a stuntman being eaten by a shark for real. Oh jeez! Life, Life magazine published the uh, photographs. Did you hear about that? No, I didn't. And that, but that that kind of uh, it's interesting how that kind of plays into um, my perception now of that scene in Terror Firmer where they're watching Shark and it ends and Casey, the character Casey is going like, there's only one shark movie and it's Jaws. And I'm like, hearing that information, I'm like, no, not anymore. No, there's <laughs> <laughs> Although it broke the first rule of production. <laughs> Safety to humans. 
the and and we tried to find uh, Fuller would have loved to 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 get the missing footage back and we were ready to do that but um, we we whoever we contacted uh, supposedly everything was in Mexico but then uh, somebody told us that uh, the stuff was lost oh that's a shame that's Story. people don't want to store stuff so. no yeah that's a that's a constant uh, thing on on this show we we've discussed in the past about things that are going that go missing and are completely lost and actually like one of the one of the big ones that always gets talked about is Hitchcock's The Mountain Eagle is completely lost it's um something that we probably are never going to find um and you actually actually by the way when you you were tweeting recently you were tweeting very much about Alfred Hitchcock's birthday and um yes and uh, I I would love to know a little bit like what what uh, what what is your favorite Hitchcock movie? What is what is something that you like to kick on from the master suspense? Well, thank you for asking. To me, uh, Marnie is the the best. Uh, really, book. and uh, it's a beautiful film. And uh, it got it like all the films of Hitchcock after Psycho. I don't believe any of them were financially successful when they got panned. And boy, did uh, Marnie get panned? Uh, the, the critics. It, it didn't get the uh, the painted backdrops, you know, Baltimore. Uh, uh, these and it, it, again, it's part of the style of the film. That, yeah, these uh, well, ma- these matte lock, these matte paintings by Albert Whitlock. These things that like create the, create the mood of that piece. Yeah, I mean, why not? What what? Just because it's it's mixed media, right? It's it's different. That's all. Yeah, and and in the fullness of time. Uh, the uh, so-called critics now look at Marnie as a masterpiece. And I sat through that opera, Marnie. It ain't bad. It was <laughs> quite entertaining. Music is very accessible. Um, uh, yeah, Marnie's... Uh, I, I think it's got a huge following now. But uh, Yeah, it's it's, got, it's undergone a, a critical reevaluation. And, and, and I, I covered it on one of my, um, uh, one of my Hitchcock discussions where we... We talked about the different angles going on in that film and how, like, how it how it does attempt to go into the realms of psychoanalysis that was kind of a, um, I don't want to say completely shunned, but like it's still growing and developing by the '60s of like trying to affirm exactly what an affliction is and what like uh, the 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 tagline of the movie is like what, what's the problem with Marnie or what's the trouble with Marnie here and uh, and then coming to the realization that it does it is a very daring exploration for its time um and he keeps doing it like frenzy is a frenzy goes into places that i never thought hitchcock would have gone into um because he really wanted to push those boundaries probably after talking to those folks who worked at calle du cinema and were evaluating his work and really uplifting it at a time when everybody wouldn't have thought that about hitch yeah, very true. Yeah, did uh, you ever get a opportunity to meet Hitch or, or no, no? Never, never saw him. But uh, um, I'm reading a book now. I, I think it's called "The Twelve Lives of Alfred Hitchcock." Mm. Uh, his name is White. Uh, it's very esoteric, and if you're really deep into knowledge about Hitchcock, uh, it's it's above my pay grade. I'm enjoying it, but there's a <laughs> Of, uh, of references that I have not seen or I don't get or, right. you know, I sabotage 
But there's so many of the earlier films I haven't seen. But he talks about sabotage and uh, how interesting. That, you know, he has a, a young boy who's a little child who's involved with a revolutionary who gives the kid a package mm -hmm. to deliver to people. <laughs> Uh, you know, we, the audience, have you seen Sabotage? Yes, I have. And I, um, I, uh, with Sabotage, it's a moment where you were talking about the kid with the package. It's a moment that he regrets afterwards because he says, like, I shouldn't have killed the kid. Well, he says that, well, the kid gets on a bus and then you see the bus explode. And, and you're right. Hitchcock, there was a famous female critic who, who you know, really murdered <laughs> for that and he he regretted it because he said the audience he regretted it, it, it what i read he regretted it because it it he felt he would have had more uh, uh viewers if he had just had the boy killed uh, uh, right away rather than uh you know was let the bad guy kill the kill the kid rather than all this you know you have a lot of suspense because you know that that box is yeah uh, it, it's playing with our um, the bomb under the table we know it's there that yeah. nobody else knows it's there. We're watching the clock tick as everything goes around it. It gets us uh, gripping our seats, as it were. Would uh, did, your similar regret be shooting the dog in the Toxic Avenger? <laughs> not at all. Um, I don't have any. Well, no, I have. Uh, uh, I'm not Edith Piaf. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, 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 the one that really annoyed people and I think ruined the prospects for Citizen Toxie, because we had focus groups on Citizen Toxie where they were laughing hysterically. And then you come upon the scene with the black guy being dragged behind the uh, pickup truck uh, like they did in Texas. Uh, and uh, it, it, he's, he ends up in Texas. They drove, they dragged him, uh, you know, put a chain to him and then dragged him uh, until his body was kind of sandpapered away. But in my movie, he only his head, uh, his old body disappears, and there's only his head. Uh, and I, 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 his name was Pompey, uh, and Pompey was John Wayne's assistant in uh, *Man Who Shot Liberty Valance*. Mm. Uh, the audience would just—it was like they came into a uh, head-on crash. The laughing would stop at that scene, and uh, and uh, it never really would would cycle up again. And um, I saw it, and my wife and, and uh, Gabe Friedman uh, and uh, pretty much everybody wanted me to cut that scene out. But I didn't, I felt it was necessary because uh, this is America. You know, my movies are satires. They're like uh, Preston Sturgis movies. They're, mm -hmm. they're kind of, for the most part, fond satires of uh, America, uh, small villages and, and, uh, but that happened. That thing happened. Yeah. You know? And it's, and it does show that you're not afraid to like speak to those horrors that have You've forgotten. I mean, look at what went on this summer. You know, we still have a horrible racial issue. You know, I mean, black people, it's unbelievable how awful they're like. I mean, it's, I, I went to a fancy cocktail party. Uh, uh, I, I, I couldn't I have a cane and I'm agony, but my wife uh, is on the board of the Hampton Film Festival hmm. and she and her best friend out there in the Hampton, they give a big party each summer because the Hampton does a series called Hampton Docs, 
and they gave a huge party. Uh, and they do it every year, very uh, uh, elaborate. And, uh, you know, all these shitheads from the Hamptons, you know, you know the Hamptons are the billionaire class. As Bernie says, the billionaire class. Uh, <laughs> there was one black guy, one black man who brought his son. And I'm thinking to myself, what I guess if I was a black man, I would bring my son to something like this. Because, and then point out to him, this is what you're going to have to deal with. You're going to be the only white person in many situations. And, uh, and you're still going to get pulled aside by cops. And, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it's... And the prison system, uh, Martin Luther King, in his great speech at Riverside Church in New York, he said the Vietnam War was a way to warehouse young black men, where to, where to get rid of them. And uh, he, the New York Times uh, totally chastised him and, uh, and uh, blew him away. They wrote a really nasty editorial and... Uh, uh, you know, everybody's forgotten that. But they, they, and meanwhile, uh, we now have the prison system. But uh, you got black men in jail for, you know, a joint or an ounce of grass. Thousands, yeah. thousands. Yeah. Though, you know, I'm, smoking, I'm bringing, I brought my vape to uh, Bulgaria. You know, anymore. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's, it's something that you spoke to on, on that injustice and, and golden age Hollywood in particular has been full of those events um, and um, injustices towards African-American performers of the time. Um, but uh, if I might make a connection to a film that you love um, that I know you've spoken about, um, I'm a big fan of Jack Benny, uh, the comedian Jack Benny, who as we, um, as many of us on this show know um, was um, his, one of his great comedic partners was Eddie Rochester Anderson. Right. And um, the, the research that I've been doing for my own Benny book has led me into a lot of situations where in, in a, in a maverick spirit that almost seems unintentional is that uh, there's three films that Benny did with Mark Sandrich, uh, man about town, Buck Benny rides again and um, love thy neighbor. And in each one, Jack and Rochester are in them. Because those characters were so popular on radio, they were able to surpass Southern censors um, and get away with things on screen that others weren't able to. And I, I find it interesting that the that by the time those films are done, he ends up going into a movie like To Be or Not To Be by Lubitsch, um, which for... For our audience, they know, um, you know, why Lubitsch picked Jack. But you, you've spoken highly of that film, and I, I think it makes a lot of sense because that movie has an on a, an unabashed nature of addressing a very real issue in a very human way. Um, and I, I would love to know, with to be or not to be, what was your experience the first time you saw it, like? How did it open up your open up your eyes, as you've said before? Oh, uh, I had I was leaning toward again. I saw it at Yale through the Yale Film Society, but I was leaning toward uh, thinking that I might make film my uh, life. And then I saw this basically perfect film. I mean, it's it's totally insane. <laughs> I took 
Chinese studies. My uh, my uh, uh, major was Chinese studies, uh, from which I, I uh, enjoyed a lot of uh, Taoism, uh, Lao Tzu and uh, Chuangzi, and uh, uh, and uh, you know most people don't read them. They read they fool around with the I Ching, but the I Ching isn't terribly, uh, in my opinion, it's not really readable. It doesn't I, I don't quite. It's more of a mechanical thing, uh, I think. But uh, the uh, the uh, Lao Tzu and Chuangzi, the poetry is at least the, the translations I read were beautiful. But Taoism, the uh, the uh, dualistic universe with evil and good, uh, you could they they're always together. Uh, beauty and pain, beauty and ugliness, uh, pain and uh, suffering and and uh, and uh, delight, uh, beauty. Uh, you know, the oyster gets a piece of sand stuck in its uh, anus and uh, produces this magnificent uh, pearl, you know, perfect, mm-hmm. perfect brown thing. And that was, you know, Lubitsch's movie is, so, is totally insane, but yet it's so beautifully organized. I mean, it's just perfect. Yeah, it's it's from the moment that you're dropped into that first scene where you have... You have Hitler, quote unquote, walking through the streets of Poland, just looking outside of the, the, the delicatessen, and you then jump into that. How did he get here? And you see Jack in a in an SS uniform, and already as an audience member, you've got to be like, "What is Jack doing playing a Nazi?" <laughs> and it it plays on your expectations. I I do think of all these. Uh, established actors and and you know the, like Carol Lombard who would unfortunately this would be her last movie um and i i'm i'm happy to know that that film did inspire you because it is one of those films that i think lubitsch is so lauded for now amongst others like shop around the corner and nanachka um yes. yeah nanachka's gr- oh yeah you you like nanachka it is it is quite a trip. <laughs> it's Garbo laughs was the was the um, uh, impetus of the picture. MGM's Louis B. Mayer was like, "We're gonna sell this as Garbo laughs" because apparently she wasn't allowed to laugh on screen before. <laughs> yeah, she she and she Garbo had this demeanor about her of like the sultry and serious and demure. And th- this movie, she's allowed to laugh, and she's. You know they're playing into commentary about communist Russia at that time, and they also had the slogan uh, "Garbo talks" when uh, she did her first talking. Yeah, Anna Christie. Yeah, uh, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, the guy, the young guy who ran MGM. Uh, uh, Thalberg, Gervie Thalberg. I think uh, had a hand in the uh, Garbo laughs thing. Uh, yeah, he 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 had this. He had this. He had his hand in every pocket. It's funny. The only pocket that he couldn't really get his hands into was the one that nobody could get his hands into, which is um, a, another subject that you brought up as we were talking about doing this was Chaplin. Yeah. Um, and I want to tell you something from the bottom of my heart, sir, because um, this gentleman right here uh, had me on his show to talk about Squeeze Play, um, your wonderful film Squeeze Play. Um, and the way he, and I had seen the movie before, but it had been a while and he was talking to me about it and saying, you know, I think you're going to find a lot of appreciation on this, but I'm not going to tell you why until you watch it. And I watched it. And the thing that I got out of it was you have a love of comedy that I think is, uh, 
worn very firmly on its sleeve because I notice a lot of silent film comedy permeating certain elements of your films. Um, oh, yeah, you're correct. Yeah, and uh, Chaplin, when you bring it up, um, you know, I, I would, I would love to know what is your favorite Chaplin film? Like, what is the one that still speaks to you the best? <laughs> I think it's another Hitler one. <laughs> <laughs> Great Dictator, a wonderful one, which... Mr. Verdoux, which also did not do well, uh, is just, uh, you know, that speech he gives at the end, you know, uh, he's just an amateur criminal. <laughs> uh, what a speech, what a speech. And it's appropriate right now, right? Yeah. Afghanistan and, uh, and uh, you know, he was uh, killing a few old rich women which is awful i guess killing anybody but how does it compare with the chinese exterminating the uh, islamics mm. and what this taliban of uh, what's going to happen now in Afghanistan? you know i mean really uh, he was it's such a touching speech you know this little guy and he goes off uh, uh, away from camera at the end like he does in so many movies. Yeah, uh, and, the, and the great and the great dictator and, and has that same impact with the final speech as well because of how it it is it is the first time Chaplin is really speaking. Up to this point, he had held off. He had held off and said, "I'm not going to speak uh, yes. on film, no matter how much sound has come into the picture." And he said, "Well, if I'm going to speak, I'm going to make it count." And there are moments in that film too that also kind of like and and zach you watched the film and yeah. prep for it and i'm and i'm sure you noticed as much as i do that there are there are ways in which chaplin acts balletically and it's like it's like watching somebody like light on their feet moving that i've seen not just in squeeze play but other comedies lloyd has made well even um like your performance in the battle of love's return uh very you remind me a lot of Chaplin uh, in Battle of Love's Return and even just some of the background comedy and action you have you know like in Kabuki Man or even Poultry Geist like you pay attention to everybody in the frame and you give everybody their own story and comedic action something I've always appreciated about your films and it's hard to do on low budget you remember on Poultry Geist we had uh, I don't know two or three hundred uh, people who were the uh, customers of, or, you know, the, uh, outside the school of the uh, fast food place. And then you see some of them are very recognizable. And at the end of the movie, you actually see them as zombies, which many low budget movies, which try to have crowd scenes, can't duplicate the crowd. And uh, thanks to um, Jamie Greco and, and uh, all, I mean, all you guys, uh, we were able to, so people know that the guy in the wheelchair, when he becomes a zombie, yeah. <laughs> it's stuff. I think it is, you know, I, 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 I do believe that Chaplin, I got a lot from Chaplin and Keaton and D.W. Griffith. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was born in 1945. So, uh, you know, sound had been in for what, 30 years, maybe uh, 28, 38, 48. Yeah, 30 no, uh, about 30 years when I, less than, when I was born, sound hadn't been in for 30 years. It's like 20, 27 years. So, you know, there was still, 
the Harold Lloyd movies. You, you know, my father would take me to see a Harold Lloyd silent picture. And uh, I loved Harold. I loved all that stuff. I still do. Although I don't find Harold Lloyd as amusing as I did. But as Zach knows, Three Stooges. Mm, yep. <laughs> yes. We shouldn't mention them in the same breath as Buster Keaton. But, I mean, like it or not, they were a huge influence on uh, on all the trauma works that we've made at any rate. It, the, there's choreography in the, in, the, in the Three Stooges shorts that is definitely president trauma films. And I think that that, and, and what's, what's wonderful about that. It's not even just the choreography itself and the, you know, the, you know, come here, you're not going to hammer. It's, it's, it's very much the timing of it. The timing is very key. And I think you, you do have that good sense of timing. And there's a, a in terror firmer, uh, when you're when you as the director are entering the bathroom to go to the bathroom, there's a timing to where you're pissing in the toilet versus where you are pissing on the people having sex in the bathroom that I, I, when I, when I watched it, I rewound it, played it back. And I was like, if there was, a, if you only had a wide shot, you'd still see how well timed this is of him doing the turn when he, when you need to, in order to get that comedic effect. And I think that that's like that's a that's a wonderful way of how you wear your love of old comedy on your sleeve. Um, yeah, for, for yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and um, and I I think that there's um there's something that I when I was rewatching Terror Firmer, it does lead into the other um, director that we uh, mentioned earlier uh, in our talks was Howard Hawks. Um. Now, I, I have a comparison to make on this, but before I do, I would love to know, um, do you have a favorite Howard Hawks picture and what would it be? Uh, well, I, my guess, I guess, I haven't seen that many Howard Hawks films, but I've loved every one of them. Um, I think the most interesting to me was uh, Rio, uh, what was the Rio? Uh, Rio, Rio Bravo. Yeah, yeah, Rio. with the... The young boy and uh, Dean Martin as the mentor, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and you have John, you have John Wayne there too, and Angie Dickinson, and Real Bravo. I, I rewatched that for in prep for this. It's my favorite John Wayne movie because um, I don't have many, but when I when I do yeah. find one I like, like that and Stagecoach are two ones that I go back to a lot. As a as a film, what I when I whenever I go back to it, I always get this sense of camaraderie and something that terror firmer actually very much affirms. And I think this is, a, I think I speak for both of us when I say that this is a, a, a testament to not just the films you make, make, but the way you make them is that it's a group of outsiders getting together to band again, band for a cause. And in Rio Bravo in particular, you have three disparate souls in there. Like John Wayne is the more responsible sheriff who <laughs> probably shouldn't be hanging out with Angie Dickinson. I don't know. It's, it's definitely a May December thing going on. I mean, there. we all should be hanging out with Angie Dickinson. <laughs> well, we we should. <laughs> we keep John out of it. It's just us three: Lloyd, M Lloyd, Zach, and Zach hanging out with Angie Dickinson. Um, but yeah, no, you were. Um, yeah, I. What I was going to tell you was that there is a there's a sense of camaraderie in these outsiders getting together to accomplish something that I think is honestly the trauma spirit. Um, and it's like it's almost like you took it's almost like you 
it, you you saw the Howard Hawks film Rio Bravo, and decided that's like a credo for you guys. Like you know, like you're gonna band together, like no matter how different we are, and forge together to make to make the film. And in the case of several other uh, several other films, you do have people kind of banding together. Like Squeeze Play has that too, where you have. You know, the women don't have anything particularly in common apart from obviously their boyfriends are <laughs> not paying attention to them and and coming together for it. And I, I, I do wonder if Howard, uh, Howard Hawks, Chaplin, Fuller and all these guys kind of did ultimately kind of found a maverick spirit for you. Like well, Hawks, uh, uh, only angels have wings. Yes. It's a, a perfect uh, uh, big deal. I, you know, I saw it when I was uh, first beginning to make movies. You're absolute. Uh, one thing that you brought up earlier on in the conversation too that I wanted to mention was Preston Sturgis. Oh gosh. And yeah. and the elements of satire. Um, now, uh, Zach, how Zach, how familiar are you with Preston Sturgis? Would you just, say? just from what I've read in Lloyd's books, I've seen a few. Uh, in film school, mm. but not super familiar. Well, and it's, I think it's cool because it'll be a good introduction for you going forward because um, Sullivan's Travels has always been my favorite, and I think a lot of that has to do with my dad's favorite movie is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And S- Sullivan's Travels is, the that's the inside joke that the Coen brothers are doing with that movie. Oh. But um, that um, the movie that... Uh, Sturgis made with that was itself a commentary on Hollywood and the desire to create hard hitting drama versus entertaining people and making them laugh. And um, I do think that like, I I would love to know when you're, when you're preparing a film that you direct, do you tap back into those guys, especially with Sturgis for that satire element? And do you like try to see if you can lift things from those masters uh, in, uh, or are you trying to kind of take it in your own direction? When I was filming uh, a squeeze play, I look, I tried to find a decent uh, baseball movies, uh, found very little. All I, f- the only one that uh, I got anything from was uh, pride of the Yankees, which may be Hawks. I'm not sure. It's somebody with it's Gary Cooper, uh, pride of the Yankees. Yeah. There's a little bit of slapstick in it at the beginning. And I definitely used uh, a gag where um, the character that Al Corley plays uh, steps on, the bats are lined up on the grass and he doesn't look where he's going and he steps on them and he rolls and does a huge uh, pratfall. And Gary Cooper does that in, uh, or his double does it in uh, Pride of the Yankees. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, it was a, it was directed by Sam Wood, who is actually a, who is actually a very interesting uh, subject in and of himself because he directed two of the Marx Brothers' most successful films. A good, uh, a pretty good ones too, Sam Wood's. Oh yeah, yeah. It's and I think that's funny that you like. I love that you have acknowledged these 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 uh, idols of the past, and so one of the reasons, Lloyd, why we wanted to talk to you about this stuff today is that, um, and uh, Zach's known this since I started this show, a lot of the goal of what we do here at Ballyhoo is talking about how those films of the past have influenced films of today. And I really can honestly say you're a living example of that because 
you took these lessons that you got when you got into these films at Yale and the Film Society and reading Cahiers du Cinema, and you you decided to create your brand version of them, and you lifted things, the important things. You know, you didn't you didn't try to make fun of it. You 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 uh, it, it, everything that comes out of it is a loving care that comes from those subjects and. You know, there's there's instances in your films where you're referencing John Ford's westerns. You know, there's there's an adherence to the visual language that isn't that that some people would take and make fun of it, and instead you embrace it and make it part of the story that you're telling. Um, and Zach is actually the one who alluded to me to this to this love that you have of it, and it made me look at trauma films in a very different way. Um, I'd always had fun with them. And thank you, Zach. Yeah. I just from reading your books and hearing your interviews, I always hear you talk about um, these older Hollywood movies and how you, you know, watch them and they influenced you as a filmmaker. But I never really got to hear you talk about about these movies, you know, more in depth. And that's something I always wanted to know. It's like and some of my favorite memories of hanging out with you at conventions was just talking talking just random movies all the time so enjoy that a lot and there's so few people who want to uh, you know such a pleasure to talk about these things uh, uh preston sturgis was a big i was revisiting preston sturgis uh whilst i was uh, developing the toxic avenger and miracle of, of morgan creek um pushed me to uh, uh emphasize this t little town of tromaville it's sort of my tribute to uh, uh, Preston Sturges' fond kind of, uh, he kind of satir if, uh, if very fondly satirizes uh, Americana. And uh, mm -hmm. I really love that because, uh, you know, I grew up in New York City, which is so cynical and everybody is so cool and so kind of, uh, and especially post-war generation that, the emotion, a lot of the emotion has disappeared. And uh, uh, Sturgis is just so delightful. Those yeah. Christmas, July, I mean, I, I want to see him again and again and again. I just never do. He's, um, it's funny, I can give you a film that he is an actor in um, that I discovered recently. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an on and off Bob Hope fan, depending on the day. <laughs> and... Uh, he um he was in a movie along with a lot of other Paramount stars called Star Spangled Rhythm, um which was a um it was a, essentially a war propaganda piece um much more in the variety vein like a big broadcast, and uh, the story concerns uh, touring through the Paramount lot and there's a scene where um, they have um, they walk into a screening room and Preston Sturgis is sitting in the screening room. And he doesn't know who they are. And he goes like, oh, well, whoever you are, quiet. Get down and sit down and watch the movie. And they show a scene and they show the train sequence from Sullivan's Travels. <laughs> and then they get into a scuffle with Preston Sturgis in the screening room. And you you get the uh, a, a small taste of Preston Sturgis as a person because he was very... Uh, uh, I don't want to say combative is not the right word. He sp he stood up for what he wanted. He stood up for his beliefs. Uh, the the studio would consider it combative, um, and it it did lead to him being ostracized at a certain point from the Hollywood system and whatnot. His uh, his uh, book uh, 
Between the Flops, I think, is his autobiography. I, uh, at least that's the one I read a while back. But <laughs> Between the Flops, you know, the suits killed him. The suits ruined him. He was doing great, right? He was the, uh, you know, he had five giant hits and they still wouldn't give him freedom. Yeah, it took him, uh, the great McGinty was a gamble for him because, like, the, the studio didn't want him to direct that. And he had to fight tooth and nail to make the great McGinty, which is a, a political satire. And the, uh, the thing that I, and actually this is similar to Sam Fuller, who worked heavily in the Hollywood studio system up to a point. Um, like Daryl Zanuck got five big movies out of him between 40 guns and China gate. And I, 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 I'm curious because you, you, the directors that you've admired have always come outside of the system somehow. Um, yeah, miracle of uh, the great Hollywood era. They somehow were able to be, uh, you know, to get what they want and be left alone. At least the good ones, uh, right? These guys somehow did it. Yeah. Right, uh, uh, right up to the end. I mean, John Ford's uh, Seven Women was pretty. Well, how about Cheyenne Autumn? Mm. Right. I mean, but the Ford did this movie how long ago? You know, the the uh, to, to, uh, the Journey of Tears, mm. where the Indians had to go to Oklahoma and they most of them got smallpox and died. And, you know, horrible. But that that was Cheyenne. You know, and of course it was a flop. And then John Ford yeah. is a John Ford is a figure that. He uh, for 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 all the for all the stories about him, one thing is absolute. He would not he would not back down on anything he wanted to do, to the point where he'd get into a fist fight with you if he wanted to. Um, he was a very tough guy, and he he called John Wayne a Nancy boy. And, <laughs> wow, can you imagine doing that today? Calling someone, it, it's, he got into it with Jimmy Stewart too, and I, I and I just imagined Jimmy Stewart. I love Jimmy Stewart. I just imagined Jimmy Stewart on the set of Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, just going like, "Plays John, don't hit me, plays. I, I, I can't. I, I, I'm too fragile." Great <laughs> like, invitation. It, it's uh yeah, thank you. It's it's uh it's uh, it's developed over two years of <laughs> podcasting about Hitchcock, but the um and one thing that um. I noticed within that, like the, so that there's this maverick spirit about these folks that you listed and idolized and Lubitsch included too. Lubitsch, Lubitsch had uh, a lot of fights on to be or not to be in particular, uh, the, the direct humor on Nazi Germany and the portrayal of the Nazi soldiers as human and bumbling. And he had to, uh, they did a screening in uh in in california of uh, one of the local theaters to test screen it and it bombed big to the point where yeah to the point where they had to uh they had a amongst other people like charlie brackett trying to tell him you got to cut this shave this down somehow and lubich just said like no fuck you we're doing it (laughs) he had the power yeah and um and there's a there's a question that I have uh, within all of this, but Zach, I wanted to ask if you had anything. I It just makes me it. think of the scene in Return to Return to Nukem High um, with your battles with the studio system, a.k.a. the scene where you're in the editing room with uh, with Patty Pie, your wife, 
it's probably one of my favorite breaking the fourth wall scenes that you have in any of a trauma movies where where she where she says Dumbo didn't need the feather to fly you don't need this masturbation joke to tell a, tell a good story well that's a, that was symbolic of the you know the world we live in you know especially uh when the when the MPAA rating board was really discriminating against the independence and you couldn't get into a theater unless you had at the at least an R rating if you had a anything beyond a, if they didn't give you an R rating the theaters wouldn't play uh, but now the theaters are playing plenty of our unrated movies mm-hmm. and that's and that's something that the that the the Mavericks that you idolize um I, I would speak more specifically about Sam Fuller in this regard you know, Shock Corridor is a movie that it's amazing it got passed through anything because it ah. is un- yeah. unapologetic. And, you know, you, you talking about the ratings with the bat- battles, battles with the rating system. Uh, did you uh, did you f- did you feel a camaraderie with those filmmakers then who had to fight the Hayes Code and all of those things like there is? Well, uh, I don't know enough about the Hayes Code, but um, it seemed to me MPAA was uh, the problem was the two, the double system. Mm. Uh, they they totally disemboweled Troma's war, and we based the violence on uh, uh, platoon, right? No, uh, no, uh, um, it was it had just come out. Uh, uh, crap, Bruce Willis, uh, Die Hard. Die Hard, and we—it was already out and had an easy R. And Michael Hers, my partner, looked at Troma's War when we finished it. He said it would get an R with no cuts, and and uh, they just cut everything, punches, uh, a dead body with maggots, uh, you know, stuff that was you never expected to be cut. And then the head of the AF of the um, MPAA, a guy named Hefner. Dr. Hefner told Michael Hurst that the movie stunk and they're not supposed to give you, uh, he told Michael Hurst, Stroma's War is NFG, uh, which does not mean newfound glory. <laughs> and and, um, and he, he did the whole big deal about the, the Motion Picture Association, uh, the rating board is that they don't, they're not supposed to cons- even think about the art side. It's mm-hmm. purely community standards. And they killed us with Trump's War. They totally destroyed the movie. It's back on uh, Blu-ray and DVD on the director's cut. But uh, Jesus Christ. And then it happened with every movie, you know. So on some of the films, uh, Squeeze Play, they took out a scene where Fred uh, Fred holds up a, a, a cucumber. And it's a, it's a visual joke, but it's, a, you know, it's based on penis. You know, uh, people, you know, it's like the eggplant. Uh, yeah, emoji. the eggplant emoji that we have today. Yeah. Uh, so in this movie, he holds up. A, it, nothing is said. Nobody says the word fuck or sex. Or, and they made us cut that out. I mean, with squeeze play, we had to cut out so many things. And but we ended up putting them uh, once we got the R rating, we put them back in. And uh, uh, nobody said a peep because the, the even the MPA probably didn't know that the cuts were back in. It's, uh, I think it's just disembowel the independent movie uh, and uh, keep the violence and the sex that uh, might be in a... Uh, you look at a, at a series now, for example, Sally Forever. Check it out on Netflix. It has 
you know, as we got into trouble with poultry guys because uh, people didn't like Joe Flyshaker's explosive diarrhea scene, this uh, Sally Forever has a, a, a shot with this very attractive blonde woman who wrote it and directed it. And she's standing over somebody and she's shitting on his face in order to get a job on the guy's film. Uh, there's a scene with the lesbians interlocking legs like this. Uh, there's a scene, there's at least two different episodes with people vomiting on each other. I mean, it's trauma all the way. The, the only thing is the, the, the look of it, uh, you know, they had more time and they probably had better equipment and, uh, um, they've got a few people of notoriety in the film and, uh, I think BBC produced it, uh, and it's on, uh, and it's great. I love it. I watch. There's only one series so far, but it's it's terrific. But it's fucking trauma. I mean, then, and uh, of course, uh, there's a certain uh, two hundred million dollar movie that just opened, which yeah, with you, uh, uh, and I'm very grateful to be in the film, and I'm proud of of James Gunn, and I'm proud of uh, of the fact that uh, we may have had some influence. Uh, but the the all the articles that the publicists uh, created before the movie opened, when they would list James Gunn's credits, some of those credits were movies that he didn't direct. Uh, but they did left out one movie uh, where he uh, didn't direct, uh, and uh, it was called Tromeo and Juliet. They somehow managed to leave that out. But every reviewer that I've read puts it in and mo usually right at the beginning that uh, he came out of trauma and that you can see the trauma influence. Yeah. He definitely had his Tromaville heart on his sleeve in there. Yeah, I, I applauded at your cameo in the theater. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. <laughs> James Gunn for, uh, you know, our fans really, you, uh, you know, our, our fans are, are cult, uh, you know, they're rabid and they were so happy with that. You know, they really, appreciated that James Gunn showed trauma uh, some respect and and just the idea that that you know it's somebody reviewed that that uh, hashtag Shakespeare shitstorm owes a lot to uh, Mizuguchi or whatever hmm. uh, you know that would be kind of normal but for someone to say a big mainstream movie owes a lot to uh, trauma it's too early, I think. Uh, you know, we're still looked upon as uh, trash uh, cinema. You know, which in France is kind of dignified. You know, it's respected here. It's uh, what do they call it? Schlock or uh, uh, exploitation. I I I use the term transgressive, and I think that's a very um, uh, good, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's the way I've always looked at it. It's never. And and transgression to me, whether it's whether it's Troma or John Waters or any other filmmaker that is is going through it in that way, you are actively engaging in a form of art that is no different than the Grand Guillaume. Like you are, yeah. <laughs> you are showing you are showing through your through your work the ability to shock and awe in a way that gets people's attention, while at the same time telling the stories that you care about and want to tell i mean bringing up mizuguchi yeah. there is a sense of like the real and the uncomfortable that mizuguchi brings into his films 100 uh princess yangway fei uh the sublime if you look up sublime in the dictionary you'll find princess yangway fei the ending of that movie 
with her laughing uh, and the leaves blowing and it's the end of uh, in, at the end of Sha of uh, Romeo and Juliet I had Shakespeare uh, uh, laughing in this uh, what I was thinking about Princess Yangui Fei and laughing in, in a sublime way you know not yeah. in his goofy not but in a straight sublime laugh uh, and uh, I you know I mean that's a tribute no people may not pick up on it but in my head, it was Mizuguchi. I was trying to do what he did a bit to end the film. And it's and I think that it, that's a what's a good part of it is that you said like that people might not pick up on it, but then that's kind of cool. That what's really cool is is that when you do interviews or when you talk about it openly, you know, you can point people to it as an educator and to be like, these are the films that are bringing you what you're enjoying right now, and. Many of them are available now, thankfully, like through whether it's through Criterion or other streaming services, they are giving people access to these materials. And then you can watch the comparisons and contrasts and watch like it's funny now that I think about Sturgis and you intertwined. I'd almost want to do a double feature of a trauma film with a Sturgis film and watch watch what you are doing in that kind of linear fashion. Um, sure, sure. No, clearly uh, I could probably give a lecture on Sturgis and Troma. Uh, you know, the, uh, I mean, the Toxic Avenger had a lot of Sturgis. The scene in, in the second, the scene at the end of Sullivan's Travel with the, the uh, sad prisoners laughing at the Mickey Mouse cartoon. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a scene in a, a church, the blind people's church, and it was kind of birthed by that scene at the end of uh, Sullivan's travels because the poor people of Tromaville are in, they're all blind and they're in the church and they're, they're you know, they're having a good moment. <laughs> I do got to say the, the wedding scene um, that's in the church. I actually played that. I got married in a movie theater and I played to the Toxie's wedding during my wedding. So oh, wow. <laughs> oh, isn't that great? See that you can't buy that. Uh, you you can buy an Oscar, right? Harvey Weinstein would take uh, a million dollars in ads in Variety and Hollywood Reporter, and uh, they they buy the Oscar with it. Yeah. You know, for your consideration, your consideration, your, and eventually, uh, he, who I'm sure he had PR people lobbying the Academy, and so uh, you know he won a fair a lot of Oscars. Yeah, Sundance was the big god at Sundance too. We went there for ten years with the uh, trauma dance after, after Trey Parker took us there uh, uh, with Cannibal the Musical um, and uh, we were treated so poorly, we set up trauma dance as a counter festival, totally free. And uh, you can submit your movies for free. It's still going, except we moved it to New York uh, and uh, you can watch the movies for free. <laughs> and uh, we, you did it right during Sundance in the same town on Main Street, uh, we it was cold, <laughs> and and we don't go back. You're right; it's very cold, and it's quite a nasty atmosphere. So, we, after ten years, also trauma, trauma dance started to get uh, uh, in a couple of reference books of film festivals. It was taken as a kind of a serious festival. So we we decided we keep doing it. This year we did it in a drive-in because uh, we couldn't do anything indoors. It's actually very nice. Yeah. And actually, it would be a fun place to watch a trauma film is at a drive-in and kind of like be yeah. able to have 
have a have a party in the process. <laughs> the the display you guys did for Shakespeare Shitstorm and uh, the driving in Pennsylvania with the whale and the diarrhea fountain was, that was amazing. Fans, the local people. We didn't do any. We had nothing to do with any of that. We got. We have no money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know that they even had they had the snowman from Cannibal the Musical. They, I mean, they had so they had, a, they had references to Terra Firma. I mean, they they were deep into the reeds of trauma history. <laughs> also great, uh, and also by the way, um, uh, uh, hashtag Shakespeare shitstorm on this huge uh, drive-in screen uh, against the nighttime sky. It was blue, dark, dark, dark blue when they started, and then the stars came out uh, above the screen. And it was really beautiful because it wasn't quite dark. Uh, you know, it was just so lovely. What a beautiful setting. And then the sound on, on hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm was perfect. Uh, I, you know, so many theaters, the sound is not very good. And um, geez, it was, I couldn't believe how good I could understand. We just, they just gave us a little speaker, but I could understand all the goofy uh, throwaway jokes and, uh, you know, off-screen lines and, you know, everything was astounding how good the sound was. We haven't been able to book theaters uh, yet because most of them aren't really fully open. But uh, if anything opens in uh, Colorado where they would like to show it. Uh, and we have uh, a few drive-ins out here, too. We do. Yes. Um, I think that I think this is a campaign we need to get kickstarted, my friend. Like, and just uh, just go over to the 88 drive-in or the Fort Collins one and just be like, hey, listen. Mr. Kaufman here has some stuff to show you and then just take it from there, you know, and I'll I'll come out there, bring the commissioner and uh, take a weekend. Wonderful. That's beautiful. And I actually wanted to bring it back to something um, that uh, you alluded to with your battle with the MPAA over Troma's war Um, or actually with squeeze play. I'm sorry. Squeeze play. You were mentioning that, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, with squeeze play, you mentioned that you were uh, you t- you had to take stuff out, and then once you got the R rating, you put it back in. Because uh, it was so obviously unfair. I mean, a picture shot of a cucumber. Come on. Oh yeah, and I w- I wanted to give you a Hitchcock connection to yourself um, because Hitchcock, when he was making Psycho, the Sherlock office was up his ass with um, demands for cuts. Um, these range the gamut from the opening scene with Janet Lee and John Gavin um, being too sexy, as they referred to it. Um, but the other ones in particular were the shower scene, which, as we all know, is one of the most iconic moments in film history. Uh, they took it over to them. They said, this is too violent. You can see nudity. You can see Janet Lee's breasts. You've got to take it out. So they took the film away, didn't touch anything. And then put it back in front of them to watch, and they passed it. <laughs> and it lends a credibility to what you're saying about like how how sometimes they think they're seeing something that they don't see, or that they're reading too much into it. Uh, sick. By the time our movies came along, if it had if the movie had stars and had a patina of of of, of great uh, clear uh, technical uh, work, you know, we're making movies with thousands of people in them for uh, tiny, tiny budgets. So of course, uh, they're going to be, uh, you may see a mic here and there, or I don't think we have a lot of that, but 
that it doesn't the films don't look as 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 polished as a Hollywood movie. Mm-hmm. So uh, and there are no stars. So the MPAA committees, uh, what else can they? If there's sex and violence, that's all. Uh, those are our stars, so to speak. Uh, you know, so uh, they, if they can disembowel that, get rid of all that stuff. Uh, you know, they cut 20 minutes out of Toxic Avenger, whereas in the Canada they cut uh, 45 seconds. In France they cut 30 seconds, uh, and they allowed 13-year-olds and older to see it. Uh, in Canada, they, they gave it an R rating with only 45 seconds. In this country, 20 minutes. So 20 minutes. Uh, everything was cut out. You know. Didn't one of your big battles with the MPA also come with uh, blood-sucking freaks? Well, that, uh, they had a point. <laughs> <laughs> but Blood-sucking freaks. We did get an R rating, but the 95-minute movie was uh, cut down to 45 minutes as the R rating. Oh, no, 54 minutes, 54 minutes. So we tried to put the footage back and things went along okay. But then it played in the Bronx at a theater and a mother who took her five-year-old kid to see a movie called Bloodsucking Freaks <laughs> with complained. And, the, and somehow the theater, uh, uh, you know, it's amazing what one customer can do uh, to a video store or to a... Uh, distributor of video or 35 millimeter film they'll they'll pull it just for one person one one soccer mom uh, so this woman takes her five-year-old child to see blood-sucking freaks the uncut director's cut version and it gets back to the mpaa so they they were they sent lawyers letters and um they they were going to sue us uh for not for the content they don't get you for that because you you know you can't, it's very hard to prove for obscenity they get you for using the R, which is a copyrighted symbol. So uh, you, you, if you say M-P-A-R, that's copyrighted. So they can get you for invading their uh, literary uh, capital. So um, we had to take ads in uh, the trades, uh, apologizing. Uh, I think we, they cost us about 7,000 bucks back in the day. So, you know, it hurt. But we had to take apology. We had to put in apology ads in the trade papers, and um, eventually, uh, basically, bloodsucking freaks was a midnight show anyway. So after that, we still used the ninety-five minute uh, version, and nobody gave a shit. <laughs> Do you still um, submit movies to the MPAA, or was like Citizen Toxie one of the last? I think that may have been the last. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That may have been the last. And uh, you can see what gets by today. I mean, just look at Sally Forever. I mean, yeah. so many of the movies on now. Suicide Squad was actually something that um, when I went to the theater for it, and uh, they did some preview screenings a week before, and one of my co-hosts on another show I do told me it's it's a trauma movie. And I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm I'm curious to see what he means by that. And um, right from frame one, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a trauma movie. It, it's got this uh, abrasiveness to it. But there was like but the amount of violence that Gunn got away with, I was I was almost shocked, especially for a, a superhero movie with like a lot of IP involved in it. Um, and so like that was like and I think that that's something that you've helped pioneer in a lot of respects is making this making this accessible and not something that needs to be shied away from and. It's almost like the rating system doesn't even matter anymore at this point. Like, well, I think 
I don't think it. I, I maybe it matters to some mainstream movies, but uh, they've won. Basically, they you know there are no are there any independent studios left? I think they've all been killed off. Really. There's you. There's you. And, yeah, I mean, I really think Troma is the only one. Uh, you know, independent movies that play on Netflix or Amazon or Sundance that they're not really going to change the world. Well, we we got. My film, Adam, the Amazing Zombie Killer, got taken off of Amazon because of the sex and violence. Fortunately, uh, Troma was good enough to let us go on Troma now. Um, but because we weren't raided by the MPA and we had sex and violence, they gave us the boot. See, that's the thing that's so bizarre because we, we, were, we had a channel. We put all our movies, we put everything up on uh, YouTube for free about 10 years ago, maybe more than that. It was a time that the Toxic Avenger musical played in Toronto, and maybe it was six months after that. Uh, so it had to be 10 or 12 years ago. And uh, uh, it doesn't seem logical. There's something uh, crazy, right? Yeah. It's I I think it's interesting too because like because uh, 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 Zach got me onto the Troma Now app, and um, and I've loved going through the library of it because there is like you know I'm I'm the first time I ever saw the Toxic Avenger was on a friend's VHS tape when we were when I was just starting college and um, I don't smoke and drink anymore but at the time I was very well baked and um, just kicking back and it was like really my first experience with trauma as i knew it to be because i was kind of just i i i would want to describe it as an escape it was an escape that i hadn't experienced before and the the thing that a, appealed to me about it and I, and i can tie this back into the golden age of hollywood for this is that you guys are going out in there in the independent spirit and going out on location and getting in the middle in the thick of the world and you're filming within that universe and you um, and knowing the guidelines that you run off to, uh, run off of with safety on set. There's something about that that ties back to the moment that cinema began. When cinema began, you have a bunch of people who don't they're not going to film school. They, they, they are literally creating the art form and they're going out into the middle of the street, creating a sequence like a, a chaplain's a good example, going out into the middle of the street. And getting action or comedy or whatever they need by the skin of their teeth, sometimes risking their lives. And thankfully, the way that it has evolved is that you've taken a lesson of people not being safe and created set safety as a result of it, while still getting the same kind of imagery that these that these films from back then did. Um, I always refer back to uh, anytime Chaplin is in a car. Anytime you see him out on the street, he's actually out in the L.A. streets because they didn't have to worry about sound equipment at that point. Um, and I, I do wonder, like, how hard has it been to get things like that and to coordinate it in a safe way for you? Very hard. Uh, hashtag Shakespeare shitstorm. Um, oh, my God. I mean, so many dangerous things. Uh, but we managed to do everything where we could do it without a person actually being involved in, you know, we were able to montage or mm -hmm. somehow get through it. But uh, I had, speaking of Hitchcock, 
when we finished uh, hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm, which started with eight days filming in Albania, uh, and they, they were terrific. But then we had another two months in Queens. At the end of the principal photography, I had vertigo. <laughs> days of of uh, the room spinning around uh, was like a hangover. I, you know, I've had a hangover where, but this I hadn't had anything to drink. I woke up the day after we finished and this room is spinning around and oh, I had three days of it. Oh, oh my God. God. A lot of blonde wigged women running around <laughs> on set. <laughs> well, it, it was awful. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a sign of my age, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking for another, you know, very, very original movie script. Any can be a rom-com. It could be, you know, I did uh, Louis Malle's, uh, I line produced the uh, Dinner with Andre. Mm-hmm. The only, <laughs> I did that after Waitress, which had, again, a thousand people in it and, you know, 24 hour days and uh, oh and uh, my dinner with Andre was I'd be very happy with it, a movie that had a small number of people and uh, you know as long as it had something to say and it was it was uh, entertaining you know be yeah. very happy to do a Mister um, you know one of the Albi short stories or uh, or, or who's afraid of Virginia Woolf <laughs> I love that if you want something to psychologically tussle you around for a good hour and change like you can't go wrong with Virginia Woolf there at all and I um I I wanted to ask before we wrap it up because um well first of all Zach do you have any thoughts about what we've discussed today like how how everything's kind of tied in one thing I've always wondered and was just like what was do you remember the first movie you watched in the theater what that was yeah it, and and if people would ask me which movie scared you the most, it's the same movie. It's Bambi. Bambi. My mother, my mother took me to see it, and it just freaked me out. I was a kid, you know, a child, a little kid, and uh, you know, the fire with the father being killed in the fire. It was so sad, and just, and Dur- Dumbo too. I saw as a kid, a child. I mean, horrifying. But the, mainly the uh, the Bambi was the first one, and uh, I still don't know if I recovered. I was in the fetal position for months. <laughs> My God, that's, I mean, that he... think of it from a five-year-old looking at that movie with no preparation. I, you yeah. know, my folks, we didn't really have a, we had a TV, but the screen was about this big, and you had to put a giant blue lens over the screen to magnify it. And there was nothing to watch. Uh, you know, there was Howdy Duty at some point. But other than that, for children, there was virtually nothing. You know? Yeah, you'd have mainly pack. You'd mainly have these big packages um, in early television of the old westerns and uh, um, other uh, older films that the lo- that the studios were leasing out, like not thinking it would completely decimate their market. Which <laughs> is. It's uh, it's 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 basically digging your own grave in a lot of respects. Very true, very very true. And when MCA acquired Universal, uh, they they tried to screw the shareholders of Universal because they they didn't put a value on the TV library. <laughs> there mm-hmm. was nothing when they bought out the shareholders. They they, they don't nothing about the TV library. 
and and uh, my father kind of invented the derivative action the class the derivative uh, class action of shareholders where if you have one share you can sue on behalf of an entire class uh, and the judges in those days were on the uh, corporate side they were not uh, open to class actions but he did get some kind of a settlement for the universal shareholders but can you imagine just ignoring you sell a studio and it, that's like uh, you know, when they when when uh, uh, Amazon acquires MGM, just you know, don't acquire the 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 streaming rights or something. <laughs> yeah, just ignoring one like piece of the puzzle. I mean, there's yeah, exactly, and and they got away with it until uh, you know until the shareholder lawsuit that my father uh, did. But it was all again, he was way ahead of the, his time, so. He didn't really get successful until 1968 when he went after uh, the uh, mutual funds uh, gouging their customers. Yeah. And, eight and it's actually funny because that um, that's that's when you mentioned Universal and MCA and that and that debacle because MCA Universal when they when they acquired the Paramount Library they let things fall into disrepair after acquiring those titles. They um, there's a lot of comedies. Um, and I and I mainly know this through Jack research is there's a lot of Jack Benny movies that have fallen into disrepair because they had no um, they had no market value, essentially. Mm. Um, and I think that like and it's interesting that like between that and ignoring these television library rights and these different angles of what they're acquiring, they're allowing art to fall through the cracks as a result. Oh, sure. How many as they say that 90 percent of the silent movies are disintegrated mm -hmm. you know, apparently there were many female directors in the you know before movies became financially uh, really lucrative women were directing and uh, uh, of course they got shoved aside when it became uh, big time but apparently uh, again i forget the names but uh, only because you don't get to see a lot of their work and keaton i think keaton's work would have Going down the drain if it wasn't a film pirate, uh, Raymond Rohauer, mm -hmm. who, who somehow collected and like our collection, we have the Rowan collection. We've got all sorts of stuff that uh, the studios have let go. Uh, you know, they for some reason the negatives are dead or they threw them out or whatever. Uh, uh, we've got the uh, Frank Sinatra movie. Uh, we've got, we've got these movies that are. Pretty amazing. A 1945 Oscar-winning documentary about Albert Schweitzer. That is that the it, only uh, Academy Award-winning film in the Troma Library that you guys have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. I'd say, <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's extremely good. And I think that that's something that folks listening can take away from this: is that you have given a safe haven for films that may not have it otherwise, that are. I mean, they, they are films that I think a lot of people end up devouring more than even the most well-known dramas of the golden age of Hollywood. Like, who doesn't love a Bela Lugosi movie? I certainly... <laughs> also, we the first Joseph H. Lewis film with Bela Lugosi. How cool is that? Yeah. And that's... Uh, and that... I mean, you guys know who Joseph H. Lewis and Bela Lugosi are, but... Uh... A, a lot of the world knows who the hook. I don't think too many people know about Joseph H. Lewis. No, but he's somebody that people can get to know through those, through the, through yeah. what you provide. 
because that's that and i think that that's a good thing about trauma now and why people can get it because like obviously it's available through the library but you you've got you've got a place that many trauma fans may not expect to like want to dig into that but if they look through the app and they dig through that they're going to find these treasures that you provide and well, i sing it to the world tell people uh, you know nobody a month first month free <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah and, and and i do think that that's like a that so that's another like thing to to cap into as we've as we wrap everything up is that you have had obviously this wonderful legacy and journey through film that starts with experiencing the golden age of hollywood through those studies at yale and bringing them into your films and having the foresight to hold on to films that you can through through Rowan and through the Troma Now app that's available, you know you're you're running the gamut, sir. So it's 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 amazing to me that nobody gives you the credit you deserve on that. And um, I think we are in. I think we are. We should grant ourselves one more question each. I have mine, but Zach, I want you to go first. So one thing I always have loved about our conversations is. Um, when you just recommend me something that you've been watching recently, like what's something that you're watching right now that you think I should check out? Well, um, I think my favorite series of the last two or three years is uh, The Village, a French series. It just blew my mind. Uh, it's not funny at all. It's about uh, a small village in Alsace-Lorraine, uh, and it takes you from before World War II and the Nazi occupation through the Nazi occupation into the 70s uh, with these uh, pretty much the same group of characters. And, uh, you know, some of them are very good, but they end up doing bad things. Some of them are very bad uh, uh, and they get, uh, you know, they get punished. Some of them are very bad, but they do good things. Some, you know, there's just yeah. all persons of human beings under horrible conditions. And uh, it's just great. Uh, another series that I love, which you may have seen, is uh, Call My Agent. It's also French, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's hilarious. It's wonderful. Uh, very funny. About uh, the, It's about an agency, a talent agency. Uh, very, very. And the, the, each, each episode, for the most part, has, revolves around a French movie star, uh, and they kind of play some of them play themselves as uh, divas and you know they play themselves with foot of feet of feet of clay uh, I, I don't want to ruin it but it, it's quite amusing uh, but the village is just oh my god you can't imagine and this Sally just because it seems so you know it almost infuriates me because uh, you know we we can't get uh, <laughs> I yeah. can't get anything out any notoriety, anything, and yet here's this, and these other things too that are on, uh, uh, where you, so they're basically most of them are bad trauma movies because they don't have any soul to them. They have nothing to say. They're just kind of uh, acceptable Sundance independent movies. Uh, it's very depressing, but I, I think those were good. Uh, uh, clearly, Jojo uh, Rabbit for me was a major. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a movie that carries on the tradition of Lubitsch. That that's yes, absolutely yes. 
It's um, it's a, it's a film that when it came out, I saw a lot of articles um, questioning the validity of having a humorous representation of Nazis in it, and uh, my response to that immediately after, because I read the I read the articles before watching the movie, and it and it was just like, oh well, I'm gonna go anyway. I want to see this movie. I walked out and I'm like, Lubitsch, Mel Brooks, Jojo Rabbit. The three connecting point there that you can make to facing that threat of fascist anti-Semitic ideology and laughing at it, mocking at it and telling the world, telling that world, you don't matter. Your evil does not matter. I spit at that. And that's what Jojo Rabbit does while also talking about how younger people get indoctrinated into these hate cults and it's it's one of those things where like I, I like the lineage that it has it it it's one of those reasons why I'm glad we talked to you is because you show that same lineage with your work and I I kind of want to ask a question in the spirit of what Zach asked um with Golden Age Hollywood or older movies of the past can you give uh our listeners and Zach's listeners some titles from that era that have meant a lot to you for people to check out well, we've mentioned some of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ones I've mentioned, uh, please uh, check those out. Um, I'm trying to think of um, certainly Robert Aldrich, uh, anything by Robert Aldrich. The Legend of Lila Clare, one of his later movies. Mm. It's the best movie about Hollywood. You know, our people talk about Day of the Locust and... I mean, the Bad and the Beautiful by Minnelli is is fabulous. Also, we, we did an episode on Bad and the Beautiful with Minnelli. I had never seen it before, and I was astounded by the the way it was uh, commenting on Selznick and Val Luton and their regimes in the independent realm. And also, Kirk Douglas is just wonderful to look at. Don't you just love working at Kirk Douglas? <laughs> He's uh, on Countdown. We uh, was associate producer on one of his later movies. Mm. We became very friendly. He loved trauma. Uh, he hated. He he was. Still, he, I could talk a couple hours on him, but but uh, one a great great man and a big influence on me without a doubt in a good way. Yeah. And uh, we kept in touch for pretty much to, not to the end, but well into his nineties. And his that's a fun and, movie too. The final countdown. It could have been. It's a great example of a movie that could have been so much better if uh, they didn't have a, a shit director and uh, you know they had one of these directors that you know gets it done and uh, he was a, a drunkard and uh, useless kirk uh, and peter his son uh, who was very young at the time uh, 19 direct uh, directed pretty much directed the movie the director was a total jerk and the first anyway i could I could that could be a book for sure. If you if you get a chance to see the Blue Underground DVD or Blu-ray of Final Countdown, uh, I was interviewed and I spilled my guts. I did not pull any punches. And uh, I don't think anybody would ever expect you to, sir. That's kind well, of that movie. That was the end of any any interest in contacting the mainstream. You know, if they were interested, they know where I am. They can call me, but uh, that was it. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't learn. You know, it was 
you know, it was just a waste of time, basically. And you say it isn't a bad film. I agree. Came out all right. Wasn't bad, but could have been really good. It's a pity. And luckily, Kirk and Peter were on the scene to uh, make sure that what was in the script got uh, the director didn't want to shoot a lot of the air work with the zeros. And he thought we could make it uh, with the models or fake it or something. And uh, we kept saying, no, you, you, you know, and that's why we had a long, long pre-production because we had to get the cameras mounted on the F-14s. And, uh, and we got, I got Grumman, using Kirk's name, of course, I was able to get Grumman. These are $42 million airplanes, uh, which now probably are two or $3 billion per airplane. But I got them to put the, the cameras on, on the airplanes, which <laughs> I, if I was running F-14, Grumman, I bet you today they wouldn't do it. They'd be too worried about uh, lati lat getting sued or, you know, one of the planes might, you know, camera might make the plane crash. Or, yeah, they, they wouldn't bother. They wouldn't take a chance like that. No. Unless there was the amount of money. And we paid nothing. The only thing we paid was uh, uh, some of the gas, fuel, some of the fuel. We didn't even pay all the fuel because we tried to schedule the uh, most of the work up in the sky when they had uh, day ops, uh, scheduled so we it was just they would do a slight diversion from the day ops uh which uh, and we would get the free use of the gasoline uh, that day <laughs> it, was a, it, was a, it was a tough movie because it was a triple a AAA movie but the reason they had me on it was to keep the budget you know to play some trauma games and get keep the budget very low which i did and it's but, uh, it's one of those uh, it's one of those stories that you just said that just reminds me of um, uh, Howard Hughes making um, uh, Hell's Angels and having to put those cameras mounted on those biplanes to get what he was wanting from the aerial shots. This, yeah. So that's like that you, you take that same idea and you're sticking them on these expensive planes like yeah, that's, that's right. A lot of convincing. And the if it wasn't if Kirk Douglas wasn't involved, uh, we wouldn't have gotten all that. Uh, you know, we used the USS Nimitz. We went out to sea on the USS Nimitz. I mean, yeah, you know, other than what we had in Albania, where we had a Navy boat uh, that they gave us. Uh, uh, I needed a big boat because it's the Tempest. It has to be a storm. Uh, we, uh, we, um, uh, I can't imagine we could get something like that done today without huge amounts of money and, you know, I imagine billion dollar insurance policies. <laughs> Yeah, it would it would be quite a quite an interesting scramble in that regard. Um, so scared today. The scares, right? Class of Newcom High in 1986, 87. Troma was not terribly. It was still nobody knows who we are. But back then, nobody knew who we are. Yet we had no trouble getting uh, uh, public schools or public areas. Or and now, uh, boy, when it came time for. Uh, Return to Nukemai and return to return to Nukemai. The only we couldn't find anything. We could. They're all so scared. They're scared for their jobs. You know, they all you need is one bad tweet and uh, a principal can get fired from school, even if it's the news is untrue. Right? They get kicked out. So uh, you know, they're all scared shit. So it's for, especially if you're not paying money. <laughs> it gets harder and harder. Really, everybody's scared. Everybody's worried. I'm curious to see how you tackle those themes in Shakespeare Shitstorm. Hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm. 
If you guys would like links, uh, I produced two more movies. Uh, Brandon Basson's new film, which there's absolutely nothing in it that is objectionable for theater or for Netflix or for uh, it's it's funny and scary and it's trauma, but it's it's refined uh, and it's I think it's much more accessible than than uh, the stuff I do. Also, um, we got this. Uh, a girl director, female director, uh, Mercedes the Muse. She's amazing. Well, you you know her work. Uh, I I love Honor Killing, that movie. Yeah, right. yeah, she's really good. She is. Yeah, we have two of her films, and people like them. And uh, so uh, I gave her money to make uh, her film Divide and Conquer, um, and I helped her with the script a little bit. I think it's. I think if anybody wants a feminist film, this is it. This is a hundred percent agree. Not the feminism, but it's terrific. It's a really good film, made for very you know, under fifty thousand bucks. That's I could not have to check out. Yeah, she has a so, bunch of. She has a few yeah. movies on uh, Troma now: Rose and Victor, No Mercy. Um, I think like the terrible twosome. There, she has a few on Troma now: Mercedes Amuse. And, uh, and honor killing, which is absolutely amazing. Oh, good, yeah. And she gets. I think this movie, in a fair world, uh, this movie should be very popular and well received by critics. And uh, she's a woman, isn't that the whole idea now? And she's a woman of color. She's the she's the lead in a bunch of her. As Toxie tattooed over her belly button, as a uh, a real tattoo. Uh, she filmed her, so that had to have hurt like hell. <laughs> and you you spoke on that pretty. You spoke on that lovingly on the fact that there are you are. It's another thing is that there's um, underrepresented voices in cinema that are now getting a chance to speak their truth and speak their words. And that's that's sure. a, that that's something that I do appreciate ultimately about trauma because the the one way that I got deeper into appreciating it is knowing this gentleman here. And he is a filmmaker who has in, who who reminded me that it is possible to do this, and to to see that you have you gave like you you gave your time to be on his film. His film is now on Troma now. Like I forced him and Richard to put me in their film <laughs> <laughs> See? at gunpoint. <laughs> <laughs> Get, get in the plane. Get on over to Colorado. <laughs> One of the uh, real underground for you know young people's films. I learned something. In fact, I filmed. Uh, if you get uh, on Troma now, I've got a lot of lessons from behind the scenes of fledgling filmmakers and how they solve problems. You know, one guy does everything himself. Everything mm-hmm. from train shots to tracking shots, and he's all by himself in Indiana, in the uh, Indianapolis. You know, and it's it's a I, I film little, but you know, each movie has a little something to uh, to teach to young people and inspire them that it's possible. And the greatest thing about the digital revolution is that Zach can can say anything he wants. He's not going to lose his home. You know, you can scrape a few bucks together. Then you go on uh, net. What do you call it? Kickstarter or GoFundMe, and you, you get your parents and best people. You. You know, you guilt them into putting in, and then suddenly you got five thousand bucks. You make a movie, mm-hmm. yeah. And then hopefully you bring it to conventions. 
uh, we let anybody, if we were at a convention, we let uh, filmmakers use our table to sell their films. If they I mean, like. you guys were kind enough to allow me and Richard to uh, promote Adam at San Diego Comic-Con on the panel. Yeah, we had a good time. Yes. Uh, you know, most of what we talked about today, I think the average moviegoer, they, don't, they have no idea. Yeah. Well, we watched American Graffiti last night, right? Mm. Well, we're just directed by George Lucas and uh, seeing it in the fullness of time. It's a good film with teenagers and goofy things and rock and roll songs and, and cars that are detailed. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the uh, stereotypical teenage movie, but yet it's uh, very funny and the characters are well drawn and you get a sense of what life was like in the, at the time. And, and, and I, I don't remember anything about it when I saw it other than I liked it. But I looked at it last night and I was like, holy shit, this is, I must have copied stuff from this movie. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I, we, we've had scenes in, in uh, you know, the ladies room uh, in, uh, is it Squeeze Play? I know in Squeeze Play we had a scene in the ladies room where they're combing oh, their hair. And all doing the makeup. Yeah, and you've got the whole room crowded, yeah. <laughs> and I must have seen uh, his movie. I must have seen something. And except that in that movie, it was just a few people and it was, you know, it was kind of realistic. Uh, you know, I, I went to excess. I had the <laughs> million people in there. It, it's an amazing shot to look at, too, because I'm just like, I did not realize you could fit that many people into a room. <laughs> well, we've been lucky. Now we get fans. The fans pretty much. Well, Zach and Richard, you were fans, right? You yeah, were start, started out as fans and, and uh, sent, sent you an email to asking to work on your movie. Boy, that was a tough movie, right? Oh, my gosh. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. I learned more there than I did in film school. You're not, yeah, you're not alone. I swear there's uh, the documentaries. I don't know if Zach has seen Poultry in Motion, but uh, you should show that to him. Uh, Poultry in Motion, Truth is Stranger Than Chicken. You, you learn uh, unvarnished truth about making a trauma movie. And, uh, uh, and, and uh, it's so interesting. I mean, to me... Stepping back, I hadn't seen it for many years, and I looked at it recently at a, at a, uh, a festival. And uh, holy cow, uh, it, it's fast! It's a really good one. You'll laugh, and, and and it's a little bit sad because you can see people who are not as dedicated. Uh, in fact, Tales from the Crapper, which is a film we made that's a failed film, and and if you see the documentary about the behind, behind the scenes, you'll see how this failed movie. It came about, and you see me in the middle of it, uh, trying to make a movie. Four years of work, trying to make it into something, and it's sad. It's very, it's kind of sad because I'm serious about trying to do something. And even on uh, the return to return to Newcomb High, the two girls, one duck. You just see how much has changed and how much has stayed the same from you know the beginning of the documentaries, anyways, um, with Terra Firmer you know, all the way through, you still see at the heart of it that that there is a core group of fans that want to help get your next vision on the screen. Yeah. Well, Faftag Shakespeare's shitstorm was the best. I mean, people uh, came from, I mean, as they did with Return to Nukomai and Return to Return to Nukomai. But this time, I mean, the art director flew in from Japan. The uh, director of photography was Danish. We had British people, Canadian, uh, England, France, 
a, a lot of them came from uh, uh, Iceland who played, you know, basically background people. Or, Bjarni you know. <laughs> and Liam. <laughs> Bjarni uh, did a great job and also was on the crew. And uh, a lot of people from, from the past came back to uh, my two assistants uh, uh, and my wife produced it. Uh, I mean, everybody there was on to make a trauma movie. There were no, by the time we got to rehearsals, there were nobody, no naysayers. And in addition to making people really understand what's in store. Yeah, because you had us watch um, the the three thick brown line, um, Farts of Darkness and Apocalypse Soon. And what it, what it shows is how crazy and stressful it is on a trauma set what it doesn't prepare you for is also the smells of a trauma set as well <laughs> but they're very there's no surprise when you get to set that it's going to be as much work as it is once you watch those and it does and it does show an a testament to something again that we've been talking about this whole time about how the maverick spirit that you possess which we we alluded it to with the past figures that you admire, and now that you've inspired future Mavericks like Mr. Zach here, and I'll be honest, we're both podcasters. We don't have a major platform sponsoring us. We don't have anything of that nature. We have a microphone. We have a computer if we need to do Skype, and mm-hmm. we've got the ideas in our heads, and that's and that's all we need to get something done and create the art that we want to in an audible form. Well, you have a, a, a point of view, you're educated, at, at, at least in the world of the arts. And um, uh, it's, I'm on a lot of podcasts, and it's unbelievable how, how many of them, they, they, they have nothing to say or read. They don't, you know, and, and, and a number of, of, of independent filmmakers, fledgling underground, they don't, they don't have any, you know, they, they look at, they think we're having a fraternity party. You know, they don't do production, they don't rehearse, they don't, and, and they, they, it's really, you know, they think it's fun, and it isn't. It's, it's a, not. My, my friend Marshall is fond of saying it is the film business, and there's two words in there that you have to uh, acknowledge. Yeah. Right. You're absolutely right. It's almost a, uh, it's almost a, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, make haste slowly. Uh, no, the opposite. When you say sort of the opposite of what you mean, yeah. Or part of it gets nullified. Uh, it's a neg- It's like a double negative. Yeah, it's like the. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's but and it's and it, but it's a make haste slowly that that produces a lot of fond memories that can be contained. And I and I am going to check out Poultry in Motion to see what you're oh, saying. I, mean, I, I get a lot out of it. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's and and actually I've. I've uh, the documentary on um, Adam and the Amazing Zombie Killer was another good crash course that I got out of that too because yeah. it was, it was watching. It, it was helpful to know that filmmakers like you were here in Colorado doing this. That was the big thing. It was to, it it broke down an additional barrier. It's 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 very similar to what you do. You break down that barrier to allow people to enjoy this. Yeah. On on that note, Lloyd, um, thank you very much for coming on to this Ballyhoo Troma review, as I uh, coined it to Zach when we pitched this. And is there anything that you would like to leave our audiences with? Uh, Any words of wisdom that you can provide as a filmmaker who has worked for 
all these years in giving the world a, a unique brand of entertainment? Well, as Zach knows, I like to quote uh, the bard, uh, to, uh, to, <laughs> to thine own self be true. What's in your heart, what's in your soul, what's in your brain. This is in business, but it's an art, as you say, film business. Mm -hmm. It's art, but it's still an art form. And uh, it really isn't worth it if you kowtow, uh, uh, you know, uh, to, uh, to thine own self be true, uh, coined by uh, one William Shakespeare, uh, who wrote the best-selling uh, nonfiction book, 101 money-making screenplay ideas, otherwise known as Hamlet. <laughs> it's, also, it's, you might want to subscribe to Trauma Now. No joke. It's free the first month, only four ninety nine. It's It's definitely better than Netflix. Yes. And also, you meet people. The people are getting together there who, you know, they love film. That's the thing. The people who make the Trauma movies and the Trauma Now movies that we acquire, they're all people who love film. And, uh, you know, uh, and the people who watched, who subscribed for the most part are pretty, you know, people that you would have fun talking to. The biggest problem is getting the word out because we don't really have any. We're starting to advertise now, but again, we have a tiny little budget. So we're, we're doing Reddit and I think YouTube right now. We're going to make sure to get everything in the show liner notes and I'm going to be uh, blowing up my Twitter page with some Troma Now promotional for you, sir. Um, we'll... Troma Twitter and uh, my Twitter and Troma Now's Twitter. Also, my Instagram. I got kicked off. I had 40,000 on Instagram. I heard I got, that, yeah. But I'm back on as Uncle Lloyd, uh, Uncle Lloyd Kaufman. Mm -hmm. So I get notes where people don't, they, want, they don't know if I'm back on, you know, they ask, did you ever go back on Instagram? And I have. Yeah. Uncle, they want to. We'll get the word out on Uncle Lloyd on Instagram. Absolutely. And I'm going to say something um, uh, that I think is more than appropriate because I'll bring it back to Lubitsch here for a second, sir. Lubitsch made a movie in 1942 called To Be or Not To Be, which is unquestionably one of the most audacious films of its era. It's a film that very few of the golden age of Hollywood can match. And I'm sure if Mr. Ertz Lubitsch were to talk to Mr. Lloyd Kaufman, he'd pat you on the back and say, hell of a job, sir. Well, thank you. By the way, I did meet uh, Fritz Lang toward the end of his life. No! Really? I didn't watch The Girl Who Returned. Which oh, was awesome. <laughs> 16 millimeter, no synchronized sound, only narration, music, and a few sound effects. And it goes on for about 75 minutes. <laughs> And he actually watched it and sent me a note back. Dear Mr. Kaufman, uh, I watched your film. <laughs> but but uh, how nice that he, I met him uh, at the museum and um, how nice that he kept it, you know, that he was willing to actually waste time on my movie. And, and uh, you know, he liked this. And same with, uh, I met Robert Altman one morning at Cannes around six in the morning I had been up all night, and I guess he had, and he was having uh, breakfast uh, at, at the uh, Petit Carlton, uh, kind of a bar that stays open. And uh, I sat down with him, and we had the best movie talk. It was one he didn't know. Again, this 1980, you know, we had done Waitress. <laughs> you know, it was, he was, I was just a dude that 
that uh, you know sat down with him and he had so much time so much fun talking about what we're talking about yeah and well, it, and it's cool that you take the lesson to make sure to talk to folks like us because i i'm very honored to have been able to talk with you and let's do it again you know maybe we we We'll pick a particular director. Ooh, I'm I'm down with that. Are you down with that, Mr. Oh Bates? yeah, oh yeah, I'm down with that, sir. Even to take our net. <laughs> <laughs> we love to you, Zach, and especially to uh, Mr. Biz Jack. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you, Zach and Zach. Have and, a lovely. And Lloyd, I'm going to have you come on the Talking Trauma show. Uh, okay. I, I just recorded with Debbie Rashan. She sends her love. So now the next thing is. Uh, uh, we do a weekend in uh, Denver. Yes. Well, yes. All righty. Have right. a great evening. Bye-bye. So, Zach, quite a chat. Quite to- a chat with him. Told you. To- yeah. <laughs> I, I, to, to be able to end it with the Fritz Lang story, I think, was the, the, the true – that was the true mark there. Like, that's – that was the that that you were the true mark for the Fritz Lang story. Yeah, well, yeah. No, I mean, let's be honest. I was the one. I mean, well, I mean, you've seen you haven't you haven't seen Emma, have you? Of well, I've seen. I I love Fritz Lang. Yeah, there you go. Actually, actually oh, when, when we're done, I'll show you Ministry of Fears criteria and then how wonderful. Nice. It is. Uh, but the yes, the, there was those stories. There was also him mentioning Mizuguchi, who we talked about on this show before for Sancho the Bailiff. Um, he brought up Preston Sturgis, who. Was in the email, but I, 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 I wish I had just kind of run the gamut this way. But one of the great things about this chat that we had was that we got a good little piece of information about how Golden Age Hollywood has influenced Lloyd and how much he appreciates it too. How much he gets excited about it too. I think a big misconception that everybody has is that he uh, just watches, you know, trauma movies or horror movies, and he is a lover of cinema. Yeah. Not only a lover of cinema, but an appreciator of those people who are the forebears. He carries the legacy onward. He does it in his unique way, which is what all of us as filmmakers do. We all have our own unique way of doing things. To thine own self be true. That is true. Yes. What did he tell us at the end? Repeat it again. To thine own self be true. And to thine own self be true is a testament to not just Lloyd, but to all of us who listen to this show or make our movies, or podcast our experiences to the world, whatever it might be, we are keeping true to who we are. And I am a Jack Benny fan, and that is my truth. (laughs) Um, And Zach also, in addition to that, you know, we talked about the fact that Lloyd has dealt with censorship not unlike the censorship of the Hollywood past, which I think was a very important conversation to have. Um, and knowing the knowing more about what how he got things passed for squeeze play and how they ripped apart Troma's war, I think is like a it's a it's one of the le- you know how we do the lessons on this show. If there's a lesson to be taken away from here, one of two really is that film censorship hasn't really gone away. Um, and I think a big lesson, I, I think the big lesson that we had here was about film preservation because he mentioned the Rowan group, which for uh, those who don't know is the sidearm of trauma that delivers, that delivers older films uh, through the trauma now service. And also to through the, I believe you could buy them on DVD. Yep, too. They're yeah. on DVD as well. Yeah. And there are films in there. Shop on trauma direct.com trauma, trauma direct.com. It'll be in the show liner notes, guys look for it. Um, and 
additionally, the 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 factor that we have of uh, having access to films like this that may not have a home otherwise is another example of how Lloyd has been able to provide a space for. I know I know he's not a big fan of safe spaces. I, I am because I, I need my own. But this is a safe space for films of the past that wouldn't have a home otherwise. He gives them a home. It gives them a nice shelter to be in, um, which I think is which I think is a more than appropriate way to put that. Exactly. Yeah. And on that note, Zach, thank you for bringing Mr. Lloyd Kaufman to the to the Ballyhoo. Um, but I want people to remember, first and foremost, what you do and how they can find out more about you. So once again, I am Zach Bynes. I do a podcast called Talkin' Troma with Zach Bynes, where I talk about different trauma movies every episode. Um, I have the I am on a brief hiatus from season one. I have ten episodes ranging ranging from Squeeze Play to Blood Sucking Freaks, um, and interviews with people who've worked in Tromaville, past and present, as well as some of the bigger names from Tromaville on the show. Um, so check those out. It's streaming everywhere. You could get a podcast. Um, I'm on Twitter at Lego Larry, Instagram at Lego Larry. And my podcast is at talk and trauma. And I'm a filmmaker as well. You can watch uh, my movie, Adam, the amazing zombie killer on trauma. Now on trauma. Now and the trauma. Now app is on the Roku, uh, fire stick, Apple TV on your phone. So uh, pick it up wherever you pick up your streaming apps. Ballyhoo listeners, if you like transgressive cinema, if you like classic films, if you like lessons on how to make a movie, Troma Now does have those things available. And it's not that I'm going to be a pitch man of Troma Now forever, but I will stand by what I subscribe to, and I've subscribed to it myself. And I get a 30-day free trial, but heck, five bucks a month for some fun Toxic Avenger and some Nukem High? Yeah, even if you subscribe for a month, you got boobs in the first month. Yeah, they're boobs in the first month. Um, and that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the show's back-end tags. Um, as said before, check out Troma Now. Look out for hashtag Shakespeare 6 shitstorm. Watch Adam the Amazing Zombie Killer on Troma now. Get his algorithm up. Get him so popular that you can't not get an Adam 2 electric boogaloo. Exactly. Which that is the working title, I believe. I haven't spoken to Richard about this. It, it's pretty close. Okay, very good. Um, and then on the next episode, um, it's a little undetermined because I think I'm actually bumping this episode up in our release uh, counter and whatnot. But I can give you a little tease about what's coming up. Uh, first of all, we will be talking with actor Matthew Murbach on Mary Poppins. And may I say this, Zach? May I say this to you? Yes. You, you may be the first guest, but are you the longest guest? You're not because we had a five-hour chat about Mary Poppins. Oh, I, I was thinking. I was like, well, yeah, I'm three and a half inches. Of course, I'm not the longest guest. <laughs> hey, 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 oh. <laughs> Ed, your penis is small. Hey, oh. <laughs> um, Yes, uh, there five and a half hours on Mary Poppins, where you get to hear my Di Walt Disney impression, which is actually not Walt Disney. It's more like Tom Hanks and Saving Mr. Banks, Walt Disney. Um, and we'll also be having Erin Mullane, uh, actress and makeup artist, to come and talk about The Bride of Frankenstein. And we're debuting James Whale on the show. James Whale's coming to the Ballyhoo, Zach. 
And uh, additionally, we will be talking about Breakfast at Tiffany's with a Bella Bala, where a very uncomfortable conversation comes up, but a necessary one, guys. Unfortunately, Mickey Rooney did something in this movie, and we have to talk about it. Um, and also, um, stay tuned, because we are going to be talking about Dracula and Spanish Dracula, uh, the, the two different versions of Dracula that came out at Universal. Um, and we will also be doing an Irene Dunn double bill, but after that, and yes, and, and obviously, Zach, we will have you back. And it's not going to be just for um, another movie. We might actually be extending this episode a little bit further, I believe. Can we, can we tease this to the audience? Yeah, yeah we, we touch upon something in this episode that we're going to talk about a little more in a special epic crossover. <laughs> crossover. <laughs> Epic. Perfect. <laughs> that's that's Saturday night te- Saturday night event television, my folks. You don't go to the movies there. You stay tuned for the Ballyhoo Troma View review. I, 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 again, we got to work on the title. It's going to be that's going to be the only tough part of this. <laughs> uh, but yes, all of that is coming to you. And until next time, folks. Good night, and remember, stay traumatized. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. 